Hey, how are you? Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck. I'm going to get technical doctor Dave Broadbeck. And I'm going to tell you about, in the following lecture, Psychology 2606 or Biology 2606, whatever you prefer. Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the winter 2024 term. Don't say 2024. Stop talking like that. You never said 1,993. Of course, most of you weren't born yet, but we didn't. So anyway, uh, right. So here's the lecture. Hope you enjoy it. If you don't, don't really care as long as you learn something. so much as origins of the study of this stuff. So I thought we'd start by talking about experiment. Time and see how long it takes. Here. Let's see how long it takes for people to notice that I'm here and not seeing it. So, like I was saying, uh, we'll talk today about. Uh, So that's Charles Darwin. And as I mentioned last time, if you're going to keep talking, just get out. Like, I'm serious. Get out if you're going to keep talking. Wait a second. Now, now shut up. I got to come over there and scream at somebody in a second. Please just be quiet. It's just basic human decency. Please. Thank you. God damn. Okay. So. Charles Darwin comes out with the origin of species in 1858, I mentioned this last time, and how he, the book sold out the first day, which is wild, because it's a science book. Um, and people started thinking, you know, you can figure out anything with science, which you probably can't, but you can figure out a lot of things. You can even figure out where people came from without appealing to any, any higher power, any supernatural thing. So. And again, if, if, you, if you know evolution, there's probably half of you in here are biology students, and you're going, oh, not this crap. Again, we're going to do it again and again and again, because you should know it again and again and again. So a little bit about natural selection. 
Uh, this is a great quote. I love this. I don't know who said it, obviously, because it says anonymous, but I know who told me the quote, which was a guy named Dave Sherry, uh, who said this to me at one point, and it just says, the theory of natural selection is so simple, anybody can misunderstand it, uh, which is great. Uh, you'll find probably a good chunk of you will find that you were taught it incorrectly in school <laughs> in the next, like, 10 minutes. Uh, right. Like, I mean, high school or something. So Charles Darwin, I don't care if you know his dates, know when he lived, 1800s, that's good. Um, he saw three problems in need of a solution. These were problems that everybody saw. Um, other naturalists, like I got quotes, because I'm not, I'm not gonna use biologists. Darwin wasn't a biologist. Darwin was the first biologist. There was no biology before Darwin. It just wasn't, it wasn't a thing. So I'm gonna use naturalists. Because there is no biology without the light of evolution. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like trying to do chemistry without the periodic table. You can kind of do it, but not really. So other people saw these same problems as well. These were, these were a real issue in among people that did this kind of work, so naturalists, as I said there. Um, first problem, there's change in the flora and fauna of the Earth. Flora is plants, flora fauna is animals. So in everything alive, there's, there's change over time. This is the word that, this is where we think of the word evolution. Like the average Joe and Joanne thinks of evolution as being change over time. This was not a controversial idea. The fossil record was quite clear. Uh, people knew this already, okay? So it wasn't controversial. It's not controversial now unless you're some kind of twit. It, it, things have changed because there's animals that are not around anymore. When you look at a fossil and go, where'd that go? There aren't any more of those. <laughs> Things change, right? Um, so it's not controversial then, and it's not controversial now. If you think this is a controversy, you're, you know, we're controversy means probably. Uh, but that's an interesting thing, because why would that, huh? That's weird, right? So that's a problem. What's the second problem? There's a taxonomic relationship among living things. Taxonomic just means categorizing, right? Taxonomy, categorizing. So, hmm. sure, there's different birds, different grasses. Hey, Darwin saw different birds, right? On, on the voyage of the Beagle, he became the official naturalist on the voyage of the SS Beagle, which was uh, sort of a science exploration vessel. Uh, kind of what, you know, Star Trek was supposed to be, right? <laughs> uh, so, he goes to Galapagos Islands and he finds all these different kinds of finches, little birds, and they all have different shaped beaks. That's weird. And they're obviously all finches, but they're all different. And even back in England where Darwin lived, you look around and go, look, there's different kinds of grass. There's different kinds of cats. What's going on with that? And again, that's like, why is that? <laughs> you know, if, if, if it was all just made, why would you make like 86 kinds of flies? And it's more than 86, I imagine. Right? Why would you do that? Third problem is adaptation. And I kind of hinted at that a second ago. All these different finches that Darwin saw, for example, at the Galapagos Islands, had different shaped beaks. And all their different shaped beaks seemed to be specialized for opening up or eating different kinds of foods. And it was the foods they ate. So the ones that ate the Dunfer uh, bugs had long, thin bills. The ones that opened up 
uh, you know, I keep wanting to say seafood, <laughs> uh, uh, mollusks, or seafood, what the hell. Uh, they had beaks that were shorter and were really there prying things open. It's, it's like everything was even along these finches. And then you think about this, think of it even within your body. You got eyes and you got a heart. Your eyes, even my eyes, they aren't very good at seeing, but they still can see. They're horrible at pumping blood. My heart is really good at pumping blood. It doesn't see very well. So different parts of my body do different things, and different animals have inhabit, inhabit different, what we today say are niches, right? So different animals inhabit different niches. I'll just put that word in case you don't know that word. Niche, you might hear it called niche. Uh, but I don't pronounce it that way. <laughs> niche is probably uh, the French. Uh, and these different niches are, so for example, you got like carnivores have these teeth that are for ripping things apart. And then you got herbivores that only eat plants and you've got grinding teeth. And you got weird animals like us, we have the, we have the Teeth here that can rip into things and we can also the nice was the fact to chew on things. Okay, look at our diet, it's omnivorous, we eat all kinds of stuff. Huh. So what's going on? How are we going to relate these things? So that's what people were concerned about, and then Darwin comes up with a solution. The cool thing about this is, this is one of those, why didn't I think of that things? And when you hear about it, you go, how did anybody not figured this out right away, right? So natural selection provides a mechanistic explanation for, to solve these three problems, and it also shows that they're intimately related, the three problems, okay? And like I said, it's one of those, what? Oh, come on, seriously, it's just that? It's funny, because it is literally just what I want to explain to you, the Origin of Species is a book, if you have regular sort of, it's about, my copy is about that thick, so it's a regular size book. It's literally, it's, a, it's eight or 900 pages. And it's just examples. He lays out how it works very early on, and he gives you examples, and examples, and examples. And he's basically saying, see, I told you, I told you, I told you, oh, here it is again. And I told you again, and again, and again, and again. It's pretty cool. Darwin mentions people, but mentions humanity once in the Origin of Species, on the very last page. On the very last page of the book, he mentions people. That's it. Now, he does, does he write a book about people? Oh yeah, eventually he writes a book called The Descent of Man, 1878, I think. Um, and that's all about people. But Darwin knew when he wrote the book, he's like, this is gonna make a lot of people very uncomfortable and some people very angry. I better be quiet about this very subtle. And I'll just mention people in the last page. I wonder, I'm gonna check something here. I probably have a copy. I'm Okay, Charles Darwin's on his Yeah, it might be my. Anyway, I don't have it. 
very quickly handy, so that's okay. There's that. I have it in my in books. Okay. It just is this great line, and I want it. I want you to hear it. I am sorry to be wasting your time. However, here. There we go. I found it. Virgin species. Let's go to the very last page. Anyway, we'll get to it later. Um, So how does this work? How does this whole system work? So we'll find out. There's competition among living things. We know that, right? Because not everything ends up the same for everything. And you can, you can, if you want to tell people, you can here, but that's not necessarily the case on anything. It's alive. So more things are born or hatched or whatever. Uh, than, than survive to adulthood uh, and reproduce. And that reproduction itself occurs with variation. Okay? Reproduction occurs with variation. So there are changes, like everybody's different, and they pass those different things on. The reproduction occurs with variation. He knew it wasn't just blended together. He knew there was something else going on. He didn't understand genetics because nobody did yet. Well, there was a monk, Mendel, and that's about it, and he kind of understood it. But somehow he knew that it wasn't just somehow an average of the two, but he didn't know about recessives and dominance and all that stuff. People would know about that very close, very, very shortly, but he didn't know about it yet. But he realized it wasn't sort of blending together, which is kind of cool, because that's the most people would have figured. And selection determines which, which individuals enter the adult breeding population. This selection is done by the environment. Darwin was a, um, besides being one of my heroes, Charles Darwin was a, an English gentleman of the 1800s. So he had a state. And it was before, basically, he worked. And one of the people who worked for him, for example, kept racing pigeons, okay, kept racing pigeons. And the guy, the way he would make new faster pigeons, guess what he'd do? He'd, he'd take two fast pigeons and breed them. And there were farms all around where Darwin lived, and he knew that people would take cows that had, who were big and gave lots of meat, for example, and you'd bring those together. And you get meteor cows, or ones that give more milk, or whatever. Darwin called that what he realized was going on. He said, That's, we'll call that artificial selection. Where do you think we get all these weird dog breeds from? Like, there's a million different dog breeds. It's not a million. There's lots of different dog breeds. And they're just because people said, you know what I like? Really big back legs or some weird thing. And then they just keep breeding dogs together until you get some weird looking dog. 
And again, Darwin saw this around him at the time. People started getting into different dog breeds in around the mid-1800s. So, what was going on? Well, he said, I know what it is. Selection is going to determine this. What's going to do the selection? Not an individual, but the environment. So the environment will do the selection. <laughs> so here's an example. Oh, by the way, let's all finish this and I'll give you some examples. So those who are best suited to that environment reproduce. Survive and reproduce. It's hard to reproduce when you're dead. So if you can survive and reproduce, you'll be better. It's hard to reproduce when someone ate you. If you're successful enough to reproduce, you'll pass those characteristics on to your young, because that's just how it works. Right? Okay. So here's a couple examples, and here's a great one actually from the south of England. Before the Industrial Revolution, there were these moths. They were called salt and pepper moths. And they're called that because they were kind of white and then had flecks of black on them, like salt and pepper. Which looks a lot like a birch tree, if you think about it. You ever look at a birch tree? It's all white, it's got flecks of black. And if you were a moth, here's a great way to hide out in plain sight. Just look like the, no, I'm just part of the tree. Don't eat me, please. I didn't say anything. Birds fly by, don't notice you. Then the Industrial Revolution starts. We start burning coal is like one of the worst things we could do. But there wasn't anybody in like 1805 going, you know, in like a couple hundred years, this is going to be really bad. So they're burning coal, and you end up with coal dust everywhere, and you get soot everywhere. And there was, I don't think people understand how much pollution regulations have changed. When I was a kid living in Toronto, uh, it smelled horrible all the time, <laughs> and it was yellow all the time. Uh, my dad would have soot on his, uh, his, his, his suit jackets, he'd have to get them cleaned all the time. Uh, when you sweat a lot in the summer, you, you, you rub your hands and be like all black. Like seriously, the world is way better than it used to be, even though it's also shitty. Uh, but it was like way worse than that in England in like 1870. <laughs> it was pretty bad. There were no industrial re uh, regulations, but we're just going to put smoke in the air. Remember, this is the time when people thought, when doctors would say things like, you know, you got trouble coughing a lot, start smoking, it'll really help you. Uh, so, different time. So now the trees are black. <laughs> you got your, your nice white moth with little black flecks on you. Got on the black tree going totally hidden. No one's gonna, uh-oh, and you're dead. And all your friends who look like you get all eaten, but guess who doesn't? The one weirdo who's totally black. He's got so many black dots that he's black. He's a completely black moth, but he's on a black tree. Now it's his time to shine or not shine. Suddenly, there's no more salt and pepper moths. There's black moths though. That's kind of terrifying. Imagine seeing a black moth, that would terrify me. Find insects a little bit disturbing, especially small social insects, so like your wasps. Social insects, they can hurt you. They're organized. I don't trust them. I kill them. On the other hand, moths are just, they fly in your face. They're annoying. But imagine if they were black. That'd be awful. So now you got all these black moths in England. So after the war, so 
And into the 70s, 60s and 70s, people start realizing, oh, maybe we shouldn't just dump coal dust into the air constantly. So they, there are industrial regulations and the trees now don't look, they aren't all black anymore. Guess the black moths are screwed now because now they're up against you going, yep, you can't see me, I'm black and the tree's black and I'm a stupid moth and I don't know what the colors are. So I'm just gonna assume they get eaten. But now, now the weird one is the white one with the black flecks. Now he lives and he produces. And that's something that's happened over the last couple of years. Uh, there's a case of uh, just after World War II, one of the things that became very popular uh, as a hobby for people in Germany was uh, putting up birdhouses. It was cheap, it was kind of fun, it didn't take a lot of resources. And I don't know if you know this, after World War II, Germany wasn't really in great shape because they started a war against the whole world. And the world went, you know, we don't like that much. So Germany's kind of all messed up, but people are making these little birdhouses. Having fun, it's nice. So there's this one kind of bird, the black-capped warbler. And what it normally does is it migrates from England down to Morocco when it gets colder. Except there was a weird kind of screw-up, a weird gene, basically a single gene, and the birds migrated to Bavaria, which should kill them because it's like there's mountains in snow, except a lot of people put up birdhouses. It's just something that happened after the war. So now there's a whole type of black-capped warbler that migrate to Germany. There's no food naturally in Germany at that time of year that the birds can get at. It's fine though, because people are putting up food. Evolution's really cool. That's just a couple of examples. Okay, I'm going to read the last, the last paragraph of Origin Species because I, Darwin could also really write. So, it is interesting to conceptualize a tangled bank uh, clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing in the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect on these elaborately constructed forms so different from each other and dependent upon each other in such a complex manner, have all been produced by laws around us. These laws, taken in the largest sense, being growth of reproduction, inheritance, which is almost implied by reproduction, variability from the indirect and direct action of the conditions of life, and from use and disuse, like a ratio of increase so high as to lead to a struggle for life and its consequences to natural selection. Thus, uh, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted objects which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed by the Creator, I'll explain that in a second. He was an atheist, actually. By the Creator, into a few forms or into one, that whilst this planet has gone around circling according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms must most beautiful and most wondrous have been and continue to be evolved. And I wish I could write like that. The creator part, and I go, wait a second. Did he say God did it? He put that in for his wife. Darwin's wife was really, really religious. He was really, really not. Darwin, Darwin was an atheist. Um, it's pretty clear he was. He never went out and said, hey, look, no God, I'm, I'm, I'm Darwin. I just said that. But if you read any of his letters that he wrote to people, 
He stopped going to church. He wasn't, he didn't leave that. But his wife did, and he loved his wife dearly. Um, uh, he just, he loved his wife dearly. And so he put, he put the creator line in there uh, after the first edition. The first edition doesn't have the word creator. And then he put it in. He's like, okay. And he did that. You didn't ask him to, he did it. He did it for her, which I think is uh, quite sweet and wonderful. But don't take it as evidence that Darwin thought that God knew. So Darwin's pretty cool. And he's got all this stuff kind of figured out at this point. So, you can think of all kinds of examples like this. Selection is being done by the environment. It selects. This is why we look and say, it's kind of cool that polar bears live where there's snow. Well, yeah, because the brown ones end up getting, you know, they're not very well camouflaged. For example, so they didn't pass the genes on. So how does this work? Those are old pictures of two of my kids. That is Dr. Madeline Rodbeck. That's her 10th birthday, so it's 20 years ago. That's John sitting in front of a computer. Reproduction is the key, not survival. The key to this whole thing is reproduction. It's not survival. You have to survive long enough to reproduce. So if you survive, you can say 128, I don't know. But you don't reproduce, and I die tomorrow, I win. <laughs> because I had two kids. So what we can say is I have more fitness than you. So when we say fitness in evolutionary biology, remember, we don't mean being strong like bull. It often is, but it doesn't have to be that. It just can be, it could mean devilishly smart. Um, could mean almost anything, anything that helps you pass your genes. So that is the fitness. When we say survival of the fittest, that's what we mean. So, like I said, so I pass these traits on to my kids. What hopes? things that happens with kids as they grow. There's the one on the left there. She's giving a talk at the Conference of Comparative Cognition in Melbourne, Florida, about some of her research. And there's John, apparently, he's taking over the government. Um, and actually, that's at Maddie's master's graduation, actually. All right. So Darwin, by the way, never said survival of the fittest. He never said it. And it's so misunderstood because people think fitness, they think the same thing. Well, that's not what we need. Fitness means reproductive success. Now, it's not just the most offspring. I'm simplifying it a bit here. It's the most offspring that reproduce. So there's a couple of possible strategies here, right? What's one strategy? Have lots of young, as many as possible. What's another strategy? Please. Uh, having, fewer, having fewer children, but you put more time into raising them. Exactly. So you have a few, but you do what's called parental investment. Both work, by the way. We can see all over nature that happen. We see it in 
I don't know, fish, little fish, you know, like, or big fish, salmon. Salmon weigh tons of eggs. There's thousands of young. But they don't do any parental care. They do nothing. Then as humans, we do more parental care than any other animal. And the average human has like two kids, maybe three, two point something. You look at, even just look at the way single pregnancies work, just let's go within, within mammals then. Dogs will have multiple puppies. The average litter size for a human is one. It's weird to think of if you've got a twin, you, you're, you're from a litter of two. It's kind of an odd thing to think of, but you are. Um, now, think about how that's evolved with us. We have all this parental investment, all this parental care. We have to. Kids aren't finished. Babies aren't done yet when they're born. I talked about that the other day about the rats. You think rats aren't finished. Same with humans. You think a baby, human baby, could fend for itself. They can't even, they literally can't even cry tears when they're born. That takes about three weeks. Then they become manipulative little bastards till you're, they're about 18. Because they can cry. And when they can make tears, then you're as a dad, you go, look, here's my wallet. <laughs> it's fine. But at first, when they're born, they can't, there's no tears. They just go, ah! And you look at them, just yelling at me. What are you yelling about? That when, you, when you have your first kid, second kid's easy. You just go, yeah, yeah, you can't break them. But with the first one, it's like, you don't know what you're doing. They don't come with a manual. There's no idea. You look there, you're, you're crying. You've tried to change their diaper 12 times. You fed them to the point where they, they actually, their first worry is, just get away from me, I'm full. And they've tried everything. And then they fall asleep when you look at each other like this. And then the phone rings or something. And then you kill the person on the other end of the phone, even if it is your mom. Jack called me now. Anyway. But yeah, so humans, we have this, we have really long parental care. Other animals, other uh, uh, animals do as well. Elephants live in families for very long periods of time, for example. But think about elephants. They, they come out and they're like, yeah, I can walk. I mean, I don't know anything else, like walk. Human babies come out and they're just covered in just goo and they're just yelling. I love babies, by the way. I'm just, I don't, when they're first coming out, they don't look great. As I mentioned the other day, they look like Winston Churchill for the most part. So the answer to our trilogy of problems is descent. This is from, this is in quotes, this is actually from Origins. Um, descent with modification from a common ancestor. Not random modification, but modification shaped by natural selection. So it's like breeding dogs or something, except that the environment is doing the picking. So the environment does the picking, picks which is which. I'll breed this one with this one, basically. Now, there are other, that's natural selection, there's a whole other kind of selection called sexual selection that we don't worry too much about, but what happens in that case is that that's from when there's, there's intra and intersexual selection, but typically, let's just even think about humans, females do the picking, right? 
Um, so, because the consequences of mating for human, for adult humans, females, they're pretty big. Consequence of sex is pretty big. It, it involves babies. The consequence of it for, a, for an adult male can be this. Well, I guess I'm leaving town. I'm not saying you should do that. In fact, if you do do that, you're a piece of garbage. But you can. <laughs> you can. So even within a species like us, we could say a strategy, a good strategy for a female is to be very careful, very choosy. You should be very choosy. You're making a big life. To, for a male, that's, uh, here's a possible strategy. Just everything that moves. Anyone? Wouldn't surprise you, right? So even within species, there's differences. And there's going to be what's called sexual selection. So when a female chooses a male, she's going to choose certain characteristics. Now, sometimes those characteristics make some sense. Like being strong to fight off predators. Sometimes they make no sense at all. Sometimes they're completely based on just chicks dig it. Like, there are birds, finches, go back to our finches, finches, these finches again? Yeah, zebra finches. So if you take zebra finches, like female zebra finches are really attracted to tails of males, long tails. So what some researchers did is they just took tails that were literally about two and a half times the length of the bird and glued it on these males. And, the, and they couldn't even fly, because they're like walking like this. And, oh, but they look over here, and there's all these females going, oh boy, look at you see him? Look at that guy. And that's completely, it means nothing. It's just some weird thing that happened. So there can be things that look like they might, like peacocks. You ever seen a peacock? What a stupid animal. Peahens, the females, peafowl, right? So you have peafowl. Peahens, the females, they're great. Hang around here, I'm a peahen. I'm going to mate with a male and I'm going to lay an egg. Oh, look at that one. He ever has some colorful feathers. Very attracted to him. Oh, his are even better. Evolution, the, 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 the strength of, strength's wrong word, but I'll use it, uh, of, Sexual attraction is so important as a, as a selective mechanism that males will have stupid great big tails that say this to predators, I'm right here if you'd like to eat me, just for a simple chance to have sex with a female. And now you know what men are like. But so that's sexual selection. There's also that. That's a whole other thing. So you got all these kind of weird, whenever you see a really weird thing, it's especially if it's on males, so big, stupid antlers that most are walking around like this, going, Jesus Christ, my neck's killing me. Or stupid, big displays, anything like that. Almost always, that's because of sexual selection and females going, I don't like that. I don't know why. I think it's kind of hot. <laughs> like, that's all it is. Sometimes it actually correlates with something. But sometimes, literally, it's, I think that's hot for no reason. The, the tail leg thing is a great one. So sometimes, like I say, you might look at nature and go, that's really stupid, and then you realize that's the reason that's happened. Any questions about that? I think most of you probably have heard of this before, but 
So remember we talked about cause and function last time and I said the behavior was something that had a cause and a function. So the causal part refers to stimuli or learning, that kind of thing. Function is what it accomplishes and also what it accomplishes over evolutionary time. So what does the behavior accomplish? How does it increase fitness? So we call something an adaptation if we know that something increases fitness. Now in the fall, I think in the fall we'll probably have evolution, human evolutionary psychology on, and I teach that, so if you're interested in this stuff and applying all this to people, you can take that, it's a lot of fun. Uh, like, but or don't, I really don't, I get paid the same if you do or don't. So, let's talk specifically about us. Humans and chimps split from each other around five million years ago. So we have a common ancestor, it might be as much as seven million years ago. It might be as much as seven. But it's between five and seven. Seven things are a newer thing that people are talking about now, and it's probably right, but more conservative would be this. For a long time, we were basically, well, we are apes. Humans are apes. But I mean behavior that there wasn't much difference between us and other apes. If you saw something like an Australopithecus, which is one of these five million year old animals, you go, that's weird that that chimp's walking on two legs like a person. Is that somebody in a chimp outfit? But they look like chimps. They're short. They're short. And they kind of look, they probably look like chimps. They were hairy. Not as hairy as your average chimp. <laughs> so what the hell happened? Like, look at us. <laughs> like, look at so many things about us that are cool, right? Like, look how different we all look. Like, we all look really different. You know, we're the second most inbred mammal species after cheetahs. At the very most, everyone is everyone else's 23rd cousin. We all go back to about 2,000 people that survived a catastrophic climate change. Sound familiar? Catastrophic climate change event of about. 250,000 years ago. We're all from about 2,000 people. Isn't that cool? Like, we're all us. We're just, that, I find it very moving, actually, that we're, we're all so interconnected, interrelated. But we all look so different. There's something, there's a reason for that that I'll go into in a moment. What the hell happened? Why, how did we end up running everything? I mean, we're also wrecking everything, but we're running everything, right? Like, we may be writing things, but 256 gigs of memory. So, kind of, it's an e e e easy trade. The megs, gigs, I don't care. <coughs> anyway, what happened? Maybe a diet change. This is a guess. Uh, so, 
If we put this together with us standing up on two feet. So there was sort of, when we split off, there was Australopithecus who, horrible noise. Uh, like I said, it's a sort of short, hairy ape, a little less hairy than your standard ape. But, uh, they're standing up, and the fact it was probably something to do with the diet, uh, probably a change to hunting out on open fields in Africa. So when you're not in the trees, when you're out in the field looking for food, you have to look over the grass. So you stand up. So you stand up. A massive change happened about a million and a half years ago when we first started cooking. Um, before even Homo sapiens, that's us, even before then, humans that were a different species of human, Homo heidelbergensis, were cooking. Had they, did they have control of fire? Probably not. They probably found embers and stuff from lightning storms and used it, but they cooked. And if you cook, you can get the nutrients more quickly. Also, they butchered animals, broke open bones, and sucked out marrow. Other animals don't do that. That's a huge source of food. So if you're standing up, your heart has to do something that hearts don't have to do in big animals like this, typically. It has to pump blood up. Your brain uses 75% of your oxygen and 25% of the glucose of your glucose that you consume. I think those are the numbers. See that? It's 75, 25 the other way. It's one or the other. Anyway, it's lots. It's lots. So if I gotta pump blood uphill to get to my brain, I better have a very powerful heart. Right? That follows. So if I'm pumping blood uphill, I now have a very powerful heart, which now allows me to have a bigger brain. Our brains are stupidly large for our body size. Like if you set our, uh, forget that, I'll wait till later. But all I'm saying is we have huge brains. For mammals, we've got giant brains compared to our body size. And our brains are what makes us us. Because your mind is in your head, it's in your brain. It makes you who you are. This is who we are. Understanding your brain means you're gonna help under, helps you understand humans. Which is something we all have to do all the time. So, you basically, because you have this powerful heart, you have basically room to get a bigger brain. And as a rule, the bigger the brain is, the better. Though, you know, on average, um, Neanderthal had a bigger brain than we do. Uh, they weren't as big, they weren't as tall as us, but they were, their brain actually took up a bigger proportion of their body weight than ours does. And there's none of them around. So there's something fascinatingly cool and special about us. It's also true then that brain size, even sometimes between species, isn't the greatest metric. Is it the greatest metric? Like, look, I'm smarter than a honeybee. It's got a few hundred thousand neurons. I've got billions of the things. Sure, but 
I also, I have a giant head, it's a different story, but if you took my brain, which I'm just gonna guess is bigger than anyone else's here because I have a giant head. Don't say anybody, anybody's intelligence. You can't make that prediction. It doesn't work like that. Because frankly, it's even the case that if we correct for body size, women have smaller brains than men. But there's no difference in intelligence between men and women. And anybody who tells you there is is an idiot. Uh, there's no overall ones. There's some differences in certain abilities. We talked about that last time. But on average, it, it all averages out. So big brain doesn't, like that, those comparisons can be very careful. And we get these preconceived notions about things like, you know, like Neanderthal. If you're the Neanderthal here and you, if you clean him or her up and put him in archonic clothes, they'd look, you'd notice them, but they, they wouldn't be beyond the realm of what a person looks like. Like you'd go, that's not a good looking guy, but that's still a guy, right? The weird thing about Neanderthals, there's some things that would surprise you, they were sexually mature at the age of seven, so their teenage years were like five and six. Um, and they were short, so they were like Neanderthal male, big Neanderthal man would be up to my shoulder. However, he could probably just pick me up and toss me. They were extremely powerful people. Uh, they could run on broken legs, and I've had a broken leg, you don't want to try to run on it. But there are many fossils where it's like, oh yeah, that guy's leg was broken and he kept running on it. Like you can see from the fossil, that's kind of amazing. You would think that Neanderthals would have crazy voices. They go, But we know the shape of their voice box. They actually talked like this. They weren't, they didn't sound scary when they talked to you. Well, actually, if something like that, that would be scary. No, really, they talked like this. Hello, I'm an Andertal. Which is wild, they had high voices. And they had huge brains, and they're not around anymore. So it's not just brain size, but as a rule, bigger's gonna be better. But like I said, I probably have the biggest one in the class because I have a huge head. I had the second biggest head on my football team in high school. And you know who had the biggest head? The guy whose nickname was Big Head. <laughs> I'm saying, I got a big head. You think I'm kidding. That's literally true. See, we don't have big teeth, eh? We just don't. We have, we have very small, actually. Take a look at teeth in other primates, they can be a lot scarier looking. We can't run that fast, unless you're Usain Bolt or you're popping steroids. You can't outrun a cheetah. Doesn't matter how many steroids you take. We can outsmart our prey. We evolved language and symbolic thinking, like stuff that other animals just can't do. Yes, it is very funny, but I love when it happens. One time about 20 years ago, maybe, no, maybe 20, I wasn't living in there. But 15 years ago, I was teaching here, and it was, it was a piano a couple doors back. No one knows why to this day. And people would just play the piano during my class. It was the weirdest thing. But I, I had a theme song. They'd come on, hey, we're right here. My guest today will be Charles Darwin. Yay. He's got a new book out. So we had smarter, right? You know what else we do? 
Like you might think, well, what were we chasing around 100,000 years ago? Big, scary animals. Animals that can eat you. There were saber-toothed tigers 10,000 years ago. So you better be smart, because you can't outrun that thing. You can't fight it. It'll kick your ass, and it'll eat you for dinner. And it's going to go eat your family. Like, it, it's, it's a, just a predator, right? We outsmart them. What we did, we didn't typically kill animals with one blow. We typically killed, uh, hurt them, and then just followed them until they collapsed and then killed them. You know, there's something you can do if you're not covered with fur, you can run longer. Because you're not completely sweaty. Well, you're sweaty. You're living in Africa. So you're sweaty. And you're running all day chasing, I don't know, a warthog and throwing a couple of spears at you. Well, you know what? It's eventually, it can't take you anymore. And you're like, no, I'm fine. I don't have fur. I can keep running. The body's going to have fur. Evolution. So we outsmarted them. We out-competed them. We ate them. We had a smarter brain. So I can sit down and say, you go that way, you go that way. You chase the woolly mammoth over there by that crevice, and hopefully it falls down, and then we got dinner for a couple of weeks. Am I saying, and I mentioned this before, am I saying that big brains means big smarts? Ah, uh, kind of. Okay, so there's this notion of an encephalization quotient. So this is when if you took the ratio of brain size to body size, and you just said rats are one. You just pick a number, you say we're, we're setting rat as being one. Humans are about 5.6. Cats are about 0.8. Uh, dogs are about 1.3. Dolphins are like 7.8. So it's not perfect, because I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dolphin run the world. They swim a lot. Oh, very impressive. Got any civilizations going? Losers. So I don't think it's perfect, but in very broad terms, it can tell you something between species. Um, if you look at food storing birds, there are birds who store food and recover it hours or days later for consumption. Uh, what they do to these birds is they don't migrate through the winter. Uh, when they run into a patchy food situation, they, 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 whenever they find food, they, they take it and they hide it. So chickadees, for example, black cat chickadees. You go out in the morning, you, you will now start hearing chickadee song already, which is, you know, like that, that's chickadee song. That's a chickadee. Chickadees stay here all winter. But when they get up in the morning, the first thing they do is they go find a piece of food that they hid recently, then they go find more food to hide for the future. Chickadees only weigh about 11 grams. 11 grams. It was minus 20 last night. Was my, remember that was that great? It was chilly. 
you don't eat when you're a chickadee in the, in the, living in the winter and you wake up in the morning, if you don't eat within about half an hour, you die. You starve to death. No, but one, one pine nut seed, like one pine seed will get you through part of the day. So it's not like they eat lots of food. They're going to find something. So what they do is they store food. There's other food stores too. And the thing is, if you look at the part of their brain that they use, that other birds use, humans use, all kinds of animals, for finding where things are in space, called their hippocampus. Um, Hippocampus. That's the HP stands for. That is a French. No, the, the French word for seahorse is hippocampus. The hippocampus looks kind of like that. So the idea is it looks like a seahorse. It doesn't look like a seahorse to me. The only way it looks like a seahorse, I'll, sh I'll show you one next time, though, because I'll bring the brain thing, but like I have a model. But it looks like hippocampus. Hippocampus looks like a seahorse. If you've been looking at seahorses all day, you're kind of high. It's the only way it looks, doesn't look like it really looks like a hippocampus. But anyway, hippocampus, that's uh, Latin for seahorse. And uh, food stores are bigger, bigger hippocampus than non stores. Pretty cool. Now, within a species, you know, like you can do it between species a little bit, especially when you're looking at specific regions. I don't know the whole brain volume, but different regions are different sizes. Like, oh, oh, you know, um, the olfactory bulb in humans is pretty small. That's the thing that processes smells. In um, some owls and a lot of other, uh, what do you call them? Nocturnal bird species, it's huge because they navigate and do things a lot of times by smell. Um, when you look at, within a species, it gets a little harder. Like I said, men and women and humans, we have bigger brains than you, but there's no really overall difference in intelligence or anything between men and women. You might say, well, what's going on there? Uh, women have bigger, have bigger corpus callosum, the thing between the two hemispheres. So this, there's probably more communication in women's brains than men's, making up for the lack of volume. But they didn't. Volume isn't the only story. The cool thing is, though, if you look at cab drivers in London and the UK, they have a very extensive tests they have to go through. Um, they have to know how to get all over London, and London isn't like a laid out like a grid pattern, because it was built by the Romans. So it's like, well, that's where the cows walked, and eventually that's the street. That's where the carts went, well, eventually that's a street. So it's, very, it's an ancient city. So it's not like getting around, well, here, like here's pretty basic, right? It's a grid, or, or Toronto, Toronto's great that way. You, you, you can learn how to get around Toronto in about five minutes. You can learn how to get around London in about six months. And they, 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 they have to write a test. And part of that test is they're told, 
How do you get from here to here? You can't look at a map. They just have to know from two addresses. It's very powerful thing. Um, and if you look at the size of their hippocampus compared to the average population, it's way bigger. Now, did they start with a bigger hippocampus? Probably not. They probably all that studying probably did something. I guess. But it's cool. There's a bigger hippocampus than you'd expect. Uh, if you look at uh, expert uh, cricket batsmen, they have a bigger visual cortex than non-expert cricket batsmen. So, geez, that's worked in the early 90s. So, I would assume that's true with hockey goaltenders. Though the person who did the cricket stuff, I asked them, I saw him give a talk, and I said, have you talked to any hockey goaltenders? And he said, I've tried. They're so superstitious, they, won't, they don't want to know why they need exams. Okay. Okay. But the point is, within species, maybe, but it's pretty hard to tell. Like, I couldn't look at anybody's brain in the class in a MRI, obviously. I wouldn't be cutting into your heads. That would be weird. It would be weird if I put you all in MRIs, frankly. I also don't know how I'm paying for that, but let's move on. Um, I, I couldn't guess anybody's intelligence from that. And no one can. It's not just I can't. It's nobody can. Right? So you shouldn't get too worked up over the idea that different people, like having different sized brains, for example, is some big important thing. Is it, look, if you don't have a brain, you're in trouble. But there are cases, there's a case of a guy, I think he was the CEO of Eastern Airlines in the States, which doesn't exist anymore, but he was born with only literally half a brain. He had a cyst where his left hemisphere should be. And he, now, he was born that way, and he was in a wheelchair, but he became a CEO of a major of an airline. So it can happen. Usually that would be very bad, by the way. Like if anybody says, I don't know, if anybody ever says to you, you know, humans only use 10% of their brain, your response should be, which 90% would you like removed? You use all of it, all of the time. Uh, so, you can't tell a great deal by just looking at the you know, volume of species. Yeah, that's one of my favorites is that, that, that myth, the 10% uh, of your brain. Here's another one. Uh, I've done everything I want to do, so I'm going to point a couple things out to you. How many of you here have heard you can be left or right brained? You heard that? Yeah. Did you hear it in university? I hope not. Because it's completely, like it's complete bullshit. There's no such thing as being left or right brain. There's no, oh, you're left brain, you're analytical. I was, I was at a talk, well, no, an honorary degree talk. Here, Ken Danby, an artist, was giving this talk about left and right brains, and I was sitting beside colleague of mine, we kept going, should we say something? It's like, no, we probably shouldn't say anything because, you know, it's during his honorary degree speech. But I felt like going, but, but, but I got a question? But I don't think they'd like that very much. Um, so like that's, here's another good neuro myth. I can multitask. <laughs> that's not how it works. You will always do better focusing your attention on one thing. 
I do better when I study with the TV on. No, you don't. You think you do. I'm just saying that there's a lot of things that people think about, about brains that just aren't even remotely true. Another one of my favorites, whenever they show, on a TV show, they zoom into, and they zoom into their brain and they show, oh, it must be thinking a lot, and there's little electrical things. That's not how it works. Now, there's enough current in your brain, by the way, to probably power a small kitchen appliance. But it has other stuff to do, so. You, and you wouldn't get a shock if you could. Like, yeah, but, yeah, it doesn't happen. But these things really bug me. But the 10% the, the, the of your brain thing and, and, and the left and right brain thing, if anybody says that here, I hope nobody says that at the university. If anybody does, have them come and talk to me so I can tell them they're stupid. And I mean, I mean I'm just going to tell them they're stupid. I'm not going to say, you know, it's not really like that. I'm going to say, you know, you're stupid. Any questions? I we got done pretty quickly today. Nobody wanted to ask any questions. And I didn't have to yell to keep and talk to stop talking to me. You have a question there? Sorry, yes. Can you explain how we're doing it and what is the nature of the thing? Oh, what's called left and right brain thing? What do you want to know about it? Well, the myth is that you can be left or right brain. That your left is all uh, language and art and your right is all analysis and math. Yeah. Is more of your linguistic processing in the left hemisphere? Uh, probably. But does that mean that your left brain, it, it, it overpowers the, it doesn't work yet. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Anything? Because we've got that's what I wanted to get to. And it looks like you are, oh yes, please. Sky, sec, please. I wish I knew. Right? Those are real things. And those, the left and right handedness are actually tied to what? To how your brain's organized. Not as much as we used to think, but they are, they are tied to it. Um, it probably comes from that. Uh, and then it came from a bunch of people jumping on things and saying, there's a lot of really weird myths that come out, a lot of kind of uh, educational research, frankly which are things like left-right brain. Oh, learning styles is another one. Like, I, I'm a visual learner. No, you're, we all learn the same way. That's bullshit. It's completely different. Yeah. All right, anything else? All right, thanks everybody. I got done early, so we got done early. Thanks.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to... Uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music, so this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.